Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to part two of my interview with Kelly McGonigal, in which we discuss her newest book, The Joy of Movement. It is the surprising science-based book that doesn't just tell you why you should exercise, but instead shows you how to fall in love with movement. Well, you've definitely done a great job at shifting my mindset, and I'm so grateful for that. I want to shift gears and talk about your newest project, The Joy of Movement, that just came out. Uh, What made you want to write this book? I wanted to write this book because movement has been a tremendous source of resilience and joy in my life since I was a little kid, first discovering uh, aerobics at home in my living room. And um, I've been a a group movement instructor for 20 years, teaching yoga and dance and other forms of strength training and traditional fitness. And um, people have always asked me, you know, so I mentioned earlier that a lot of my own scientific research has been looking at how meditation affects um, mental health and relationships. And meditation is something wonderful. And I've, you know, written about mindset resets and psychological interventions. But whenever people have asked me throughout my career, if I could only do one thing that would have an immediate positive impact on my, my mental well-being and happiness, what should I do? There are a lot of things I would recommend, you know, volunteer, get a pet, you know, rethink stress. But the number one thing I've always said is exercise, move your body more. The research is so clear in every country around the world, every age group, every physical health status, ability or disability, socioeconomic status, race, gender identity, you name it. If you are alive and in a body and you are able to move more, you are happier, you have more meaning in life, you have more hope, you feel more connected to others, you're less at risk for depression or loneliness. Um, If you struggled with things like depression and anxiety or addiction or trauma, moving more in ch- it increases your chance of recovering in a way that is positive. Um, it's just, it's the evidence is overwhelming. So, so this is a book where I'm finally like putting my words where what I've always said, um, that probably the most single, most important thing you can do if you want to be happier is to move more. And that's sort of every way you might want to define happiness, which is why I called the book, the joy of movement, because we're talking about meaning, hope, a sense of yourself as courageous and confident and making progress in life, um, feeling connected to something bigger than yourself, love, all the things that we say we want, movement seems to give us access to that. And so this book is about the science uh, behind why that is true. Everything from how movement changes your neurochemistry to make your brain more resilient uh, against depression or trauma to how exercise creates the neurochemistry of connection so that you can be a better parent or partner or friend and enjoy relationships more. It is amazing how movement creates 
a, a brain and a mindset that gives us more access to, to all of these joys that I mentioned. I feel like with your first two books, The Upside of Trust, Stress and The Willpower Instinct, you were arguing against some firmly held beliefs that are wrong. Is, is there something like that with the new book? I feel like a lot of people agree with you that exercise is good for them. It, is there something that you're trying to you know, shift our mindset on with a new book? Yeah, a couple of things. So because I've worked in the fitness industry for 20 years, um, I've really, you know, I've been struggling against a culture, not only in the fitness industry, but I think broadly in the world. And this, it's not just in the US. I've seen this in other Western countries and where I've spoken with people and traveled, where first of all, we, we define movement and exercise as having one primary purpose, which is to lose weight or create a physically attractive body. And we have such a short-sighted view of what movement or exercise is for that we get lost in tracking calories burned and looking in the mirror and maybe judging what our body looks like and not even noticing how it feels to lift something heavy or to move with grace and strength and power and speed. And um, this this mindset that movement is about losing weight or making our bodies look in a way that's more acceptable to others or to ourselves when we look in the mirror, it really gets in the way of, first of all, wanting to move um, because there's so many complicated emotions around weight and body shame that even just defining exercise in those terms can make people want to stay away from it entirely. But it also can keep us from experiencing a lot of the joys. Because if you're so busy tracking calories or staring at yourself in the mirror and judging what you look like, it can be harder to experience the joys of cooperating with other people that you're moving with or having an interesting conversation with someone that you're going for a run with and, and all sorts of other joys. So that's part of it. And the other idea that I'm really trying to argue against in this book, and I made, so, I was so deliberate in choosing whose stories get told in this book, because there is a belief that the joys of movement are most uh, available and most powerful for people in young bodies, thin bodies, able bodies, uh, or any other sort of stereotype about who an exerciser is or you know who moves. And um, so in this book, I focus on communities where everyone has a physical disability or a traumatic brain injury, or people are dealing with a neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's disease, which literally like the primary symptom is impairing your ability to move. And people are experiencing the joys of movement. People who are struggling with serious um, mental health challenges, including depression and suicidal thinking and trauma. Um, even some of the research that I looked at was looking at people choosing to move at the end of life in hospice care when they're is there is no interest in burning calories or trying to beef up your biceps. That is, it is about allowing yourself to experience the joys of being alive and using your body and spending time with others and what it feels like to move. So I would say that's the other thing I'm arguing against is this idea that you need to have a certain type of body to, to um, appreciate and thrive in movement. And that movement is not for people who look like they could be on the cover of some fitness magazine. One of the, you know, passages that stopped me in my tracks was research that shows that for movement to work, for exercise to work and affect you in a in a healthy mental way to fight depression, anxiety, you said it takes roughly three weeks. And 
What's funny is that when people are prescribed antidepressants and are told, hey, this isn't going to work for a month, people are like, yeah, no big deal. I understand that. And then, but with exercise, like after the first day, they're like, I'm not feeling it. So I'm going to stop. Yeah, it's interesting. So, and I should say, there's no like definitive time scale, but what you're pointing to is research showing that. So people have looked at how exercise changes the brain in ways that, that really help with depression and help with mental health. And some of the changes you see are things like um, increased uh, robustness of the reward system, which helps us expect that things will be pleasurable, that gives us motivation to get out of bed, that gives us a sense of hope, uh, that gives us a sense of drive and purpose. And among people who suffer from depression, as well as people who have struggled in the past with substance abuse and addiction, the reward system of the brain is often kind of asleep at the wheel. And it, it produces symptoms of hopelessness or despair, a difficult finding energy, um, difficulty anticipating that connecting with other people will feel good. And actually, like, less pleasure do, doing these things. It actually is less pleasurable to connect, to look at a sunset, to enjoy a, a healthy meal. And um, exercise actually amps up the reward system. It, it makes the, the joys of everyday life, makes you more sensitive to them, receptive to them. But it doesn't happen the first time you go for a walk or you go to a dance class or you lift weights. Um, a lot of the, the peak changes you see actually unfold after six weeks of training. And you see the structural changes in the brain and you see the changes in brain activity. And like you said, like this is going to take a real commitment. And uh, because you're, you're doing something more active than maybe taking medication, which by the way, I should say, sometimes people think my books are an argument against medication. Let me tell you, I am here for the science and I'm here for anything that helps. And that includes any type of pharmacological treatment that supports people. So this is not about go for a walk so you never need to take an antidepressant. That is not what this is about. Um, but knowing that movement enhances almost every other treatment that's ever been studied, whether it's therapy or, or um, drug therapy. And it does take time. And you often have to get through a period where it, I don't want to go for a walk. I don't want to go for a walk. And again, I don't want to go for a walk. And it didn't feel that great. I didn't get some runner's high. The brain actually learns how to experience movement as joyful over time. If you go for a walk or a run, how you feel when you are walking or running after six weeks is not how you feel the first time you went for that walk or run or the first time you went to a, a movement class or the first time you go practice yoga. The brain literally learns how to enjoy it over time. It's a, a bit of an acquired taste. And at the same time, the brain is learning how not just to enjoy that walk or run, but your brain is changing in a way that allows you to enjoy all of life more. And there's so many examples like that. That's just one of the ways that exercise affects the brain so that you know, whether or not you're depressed, you're basically giving yourself more access to your natural capacity for joy. What was the biggest surprise in your research for this book? Like you had an idea for it. What was the, the thing that you found that was like, oh my God, I didn't see this coming. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let me tell you about this is, this is a way that exercise affects your brain that is so mind blowing. It's like the first thing I tell everyone when I'm trying to explain uh, why this, why our bodies are meant to move. So researchers discovered about a decade ago that your muscles are basically an endocrine organ. So we know like your adrenal glands can secrete hormones and your pituitary gland can secrete hormones and they affect every system of your body, including how your brain functions. We did not know that your muscles also secrete chemicals and proteins into your bloodstream 
that affect every system of your body, your immune system, your cardiovascular system, and very much your brain and your nervous system. And it turns out that your muscles, basically, when you contract them in a regular systematic way, which is basically any form of exercise, when you contract your muscles, it's like, oh, now is the time to secrete all of these chemicals and proteins that are good for you, that kill cancer cells and reduce inflammation and protect your heart and make your brain resilient to stress and can relieve depression and can increase hope and motivation. And it's literally like your muscles are their own pharmacy and they produce medicine for your brain. But the only way to get your muscles to give this medicine to your brain is to contract your muscles. You need to go for a walk or you need to lift weights or you need to to dance. You need to use your muscles and then your muscles will put into your bloodstream chemicals that that protect your brain against all sorts of things, also against age-related diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, and the one of the first research teams to write about this finding called those chemicals that your muscles release during exercise hope molecules because they are literally molecules that your muscles produce that their ultimate effect is to to basically protect you from despair to create a kind of hope and so like when you exercise you're giving yourself an intravenous dose of hope and that is we often experience that like people often feel better after they move they feel more optimistic they feel more energized they feel more confident but to know that it's literally happening at the level of your muscles give, giving you hope into your bloodstream that travel to your brain. Is that not mind-blowing? You can't, mind-blowing. you can't get it any way other than exercise. The other mind-blowing thing that is related is you talked about how many steps the research showed it takes. Like when you become more sedentary and you have less steps, how many it takes to start experiencing like anxiety, depression. Yeah. And that number is higher than the average step count for the average American. I know this is, I, I, I thought about how much to try to, um, hammer home this point. And I kind of left it a little bit. It was a little subtler in the actual book than some versions I wrote about because this actually horrified me. So you're talking about research that, um, asked people who are moderately active. I think they were averaging something like eight or 9,000 steps a day, which is higher than the average American. It's actually higher than the average around the world. But it's not like people are going out, you know, running 10 miles a day to get to that point. So they're moderately active. And then um, they were given step counters, accelerometers to, to track their activity. And they were told to try to reduce their average step count, um, not to zero, but just like, could you, could you be less active? You know, if you exercise on a regular basis, could you like not exercise for the next couple of weeks? Just become more sedentary. And the research found that they were able to get their average um, step counts down to between five and 6,000 a day. And also u- like universally doing this increased feelings of depression and anxiety, decreased meaning in life and satisfaction with life. Like anything good went down, everything bad went up. And as soon as they were allowed to resume their normal activity, you saw their, their mood and their mental health bounce back. And again, the thing that you're pointing to is that what they got their step count to was higher than the national average, which I believe is is like hovering around 5,000 steps a day in the US. And so it makes you wonder, are we sort of as a, a culture, 
have we actually cut ourselves off from, from meaning in life? And are we actually inducing depression and anxiety by living a sedentary enough life that when you make people do it, seems to induce depression and anxiety and reduce happiness. Like as a society, we may have constructed a culture and and literally a landscape where people are moving so little that we could be contributing to what we know are epidemics of depression and anxiety and loneliness. And I'm not saying that being sedentary is the only cause or even the primary cause, but certainly if you are sedentary, if you're in that category, it gives pretty you know good reason to think that increasing activity is going to be one of the best things you can do to support your mental health. Changing your bank won't transform your life, but it can bring about small changes toward improving your financial health, which, after all, is a large part of your overall wellness. Do you pay bank fees? You shouldn't. Do you earn interest even on your checking account balances? Well, you should. Does your bank account let you link outside accounts like your credit card, see your total picture of your finances? Or do you need an outside app for that? It's 2020, people. Smart tech-forward banks like NBKC pay you to bank with them not the other way around. No account fees, no overdraft fees, free ATMs with money pass, mobile deposits, no limits on the mobile deposits, by the way. That's huge. And they pay interest on your balance. You can budget and track finances within your account so you'll be better at money, even in a small step way. Many Americans pay over $300 a year in bank fees, so this could be significant. Check out MBKC, open an account online, in five minutes and take your time in switching things over. It's a small change toward better financial health and likely the last change of banks you'll ever make. NBKC is a member, FDIC, and an equal housing lender. And you can go to nbkc.com slash Diana and you can sign up for an account there and you get a box of really cool stuff. It's amazing. Everybody who's gotten the box has raved about it online. Yes. I mean, the bank thing may not be life-changing, but I think this box is. I want to tell you about my purple mattress habit. <laughs> uh, I am about to go, we are about to go on a vacation. And as excited as I am about going on vacation, I am a little trepidatious about leaving our purple mattress behind. I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, that is starting to worry me. And it's just not practical to take it with us because it's the size of a mattress. No, you can't ship it. But man, it actually makes it more exciting to come back home at the end of a vacation because you're like, I'm going back to my purple mattress. If you're waiting you know, every 10 years or whatever to buy a mattress like we did. This is a perfect round number, decade 2020, to make the purchase. It's the mattress decade, I'm pretty sure. The purple mattress is going to feel different to you than anything you've experienced before. It uses this brand new material uh, that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. So it's not like the memory foam that you're used to. It's it's better. They offer you a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. You get a 10-year warranty, free shipping and returns, and a free in-home setup, and they take the old mattress. I think their motto should be, we make vacations less fun. (laughs) You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts that you already get on the website. You just text Diana, D-I-A-N-A, to 84888. The only way to get the free pillow is to text Diana to 84888. That is keyword Diana to 84888. Message and data reads may apply. 
So what amount of exercise is enough to get me started to get some of these beneficial things? And am I supposed to be walking? Am I supposed to be taking fitness classes? Yeah. This what is, is where it that helps? The news is like, is incredibly good. So first of all, I, I did look in the research, what's the smallest dose of movement that creates the feel better effect. That is, you will almost always feel better after moving than if you had not moved. And the smallest dose anyone has looked at is three minutes and it works. So I tell people, like, think of it as a song. So if you're at home or you're walking and you're listening to your phone, you could just pick a single song, listen to a song you love and move your body, walk, dance, stretch, do some push-ups, you know, whatever, um, move heavy things around your house. I mean, it's all exercise. Um, do it for a song. And the research suggests that three minutes of movement, if you've been sedentary or if you're just waking up is enough to increase your positive emotions and give you more energy. Like, so that, like how much better news can you get that small doses work? Now, if you are interested, and by the way, I should also say when, when people try to compare different forms of movement, there is almost no evidence that there is a particular form of movement that is universally better for everyone. This is really a matching issue where some, every person is going to respond more to some forms of movement than other based on their personality based on their life experiences, based on probably to some degree, their temperament and their genetics. For me, the forms of movement that are most empowering and helpful are moving to music in community, like a a group kickboxing class or a group dance class or a group yoga class with music. And I have discovered that over time, the music helps moving with other people produces this kind of collective joy, this kind of euphoria and, and sense of of, of hope that I don't get when I exercise on my own. But that's not everyone's path. Many people I talk to, it's about moving in nature. And the thing that is their perfect medicine that is most empowering is doing it by themselves in a natural setting and getting outdoors. For a lot of people I talk to, it's about doing hard things. Uh, and you know, for me, I'm not, I'm not particularly motivated to push myself but so many women I talk to, it's powerlifting, it's CrossFit, it's training for a marathon. And like the secret ingredient is doing the hard thing. Maybe how it feels in the moment, maybe how you feel when you're done, maybe how you feel about yourself the next day that you, you know, you did that race or you, you had your personal best lifting the heaviest thing you've ever lifted. And I really think that people need to ask themselves, What's the movement that's going to move me? And don't look for the study that says you should row or swim or dance or run. Um, There's so much that's about, movement is like a metaphor. And so I want to celebrate life. So I want to dance and I want to dance with other people. Um, For some people, they want to run and prove themselves, you know, out there when they're sweating and their muscles are saying, I want to stop it's really meaningful to experience themselves as somebody who keeps going. So there's so many ways to find the right movement for you. And the only thing I will say that the research, if like, if there's a clear indication, if you want the most benefits possible, um, is intensity probably amplifies almost every benefit you can think of. And so thinking about training in the direction of, yeah, doing it for longer, or, or pushing your heart rate up a little bit more, or lifting something heavier, that intensity seems to amplify. It's not necessary. 
for benefits like reducing depression or, or making your brain more sensitive to joy or reducing loneliness. It's not necessary, but intensity seems to like really help activate the highest levels of those rewards. Well, you know, as part of our journey of recovery over the last year, exercise has been a really big part of it, but we never really understood why. We just knew. I mean, we were just like throwing spaghetti at the wall. We were what do you do? What's, what has been most, <laughs> most like, so I'm curious, the reason I ask is because of course there's the neurological effects, but I do really think there's a lot to the meaning and the metaphor. So what have you, what have you been doing? Well, we like made our basement into a gym. And mm-hmm. so we took away all excuses to not be able to leave the house or when our son's asleep. And uh, we do a lot of strength training, uh, but have started introducing a lot more cardio. Uh, to I just think we're really much more open to all kinds of exercise. Like before this year, I don't think uh, Jason took yoga seriously, but now he's like, yeah, whatever. Like I'll try anything. Um, he did something called the Murph Challenge last year, which is like a crazy physical feat that he set for himself and is now thinking about what he wants to do for this year. So I guess it's all about like I'm doing a handstand challenge for yes. the year. So, <laughs> yeah. so I think I think it's all about making yourself uncomfortable and, and pushing uh, as much as you can to to work on what it is. But I will tell you, whenever we have one of those days, that's like, you know, like two steps forward, one step back day, we go through this checklist of like, okay, well, how long since you've meditated? How long since you've worked out? And uh, I guess we felt the science that you write about, but just never had the words to explain what was happening. Yeah. And I love that you are pointing to your own direct experience that I, you know, I mean, I write about the science because I think it's fascinating and maybe it will be motivating. It will encourage people. And for people who maybe like have been told it's selfish to take time to move, part of what I'm hoping the science does is it's like, you know what? It is not selfish. It is self-preservation. And if you have discovered that you need to exercise to support your mental health, do not let anyone tell you that this is not something that you that you should make a priority in your life. But the science is is it should be consistent with people's direct experience. And so you don't necessarily need the science if you're willing to explore. And the the sense of sort of curiosity and openness that you're describing, that why why do so many people say that yoga has saved their lives? Like, what's that about? Maybe I will try it. <laughs> And I'll discover if it makes me feel calmer or more confident or more empowered. Yoga has been a very important part of my life as well. And you know, what's so interesting is yoga didn't change my life until I stopped doing the form of yoga that was all about relaxing, like restorative yoga, a million forward folds and like relax, release. When I started doing Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga and a form that focused on things like arm balances and back bends and things I was scared to do, I like to go upside down, uh, it, it changed my life. And so again, it's like a lot of these activities, there's going to be a version that is going to meet you where you are and give you not just the physical, but the psychological or the social experience you need to empower you to face the rest of your life with the strengths that that movement form develops. So like you described this idea of taking on a crazy challenge and then doing it, you know, that generalizes to life. So if you, whether it's a handstand challenge or you're training for a marathon or whatever it is, when you experience yourself as somebody who sets that kind of goal and trains for it and gets the help you need, if you need support in getting to that goal, 
and then celebrates it afterward as you as you witness yourself doing it, like you better believe that generalizes to dealing with other goals in life or even the challenges that you didn't choose for yourself. But now you have the experience that you are someone who can do amazing and amazingly difficult things. Well, I'm sorry I've made you sit for this long for this podcast. We have to reinvent walking podcasts to get more movement out of these conversations. <laughs> Uh, what, uh, my last question is uh, in writing this book and reading all this research, are there any changes that you've made in your life because of what you've learned? Ah, uh, yes. It, it's because you some, were pretty good at movement I know, beforehand. I know. I, so nothing revolutionary, like you, I'm still not a runner. Running is not my thing. My husband's a runner. My twin sister is a runner. So I thought like, I really investigated the science of running and, oh my gosh, runners have the best stories too. their commitment to their activity. I'm very impressed by runners, but I'm, I'm, I would still rather dance. Um, so it didn't change me in that way, but I will say that, um, I, I mentioned, I teach group movement classes and I knew, I knew how important they were to me and how they create communities of belonging and support. But the stories that I heard, not just from my students, I, you know, I interviewed some of my students, but from people all over the world talking about how movement communities matter. It's not just a group of strangers you sweat with, that over time, strangers become this kind of support network. It's not like the, your best friends or your immediate family, but a support network that gets you through difficult times and gives you a place where you can go where you, you don't have to perform in any other way. You don't have to be the good mom or the strong wife or whatever, you know, the, the powerful boss. You can just be who you are with other human beings and get support that you need. The stories I heard were so powerful. I wrote about some of them in the book, but the, the biggest transformation that, that this writing this book had for me is to really value what I'm doing when I'm leading group movement classes and to make choices as much as I can in how I create the class, lead the class, talk to people after class, so that that I am maximizing that social benefit and the feeling of belonging, that somebody saw me today, somebody cares about me, and if I'm dealing with a crisis in my life, this is going to be an hour of the day that allows me to go back to life feeling supported and, and more hopeful. Um, I'm just doubling down on that. And I think I didn't, I sort of appreciated it, but now I really... I really appreciate that. Kelly, thank you so much for for writing the books and for coming on the show. Uh, how can people learn more about you and your work? Um, well, you can pick up either the books we talked about, The Joy of Movement or The Upside of Stress, um, or find me on my website, kellymcgonigal.com, and that's where you can find all my social handles. Um, and I'm going to be doing some live... Um, book club events, uh, on Facebook. So find me on my Facebook page. Uh, it's Kelly McGonigal author. And, you know, for the next couple of months, um, people can actually, you know, interact with me, uh, and, and read the book together with me. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. Jesse, that was a big two-parter. Bring on the stress. What do you want to talk about first? Well, stress. Apparently it's a good thing. Apparently, changed my life. You know, I'm getting a little bit dizzy from having my life change <laughs> so much every week. I make a 180 degree turn and I'm basically just spinning around in circles. It's great. From all the life changes. I mean, it's been amazing, but a huge adjustment. It's huge. Yeah. In so, an amazing way. So what was your biggest takeaway from the show? My biggest takeaway is that you really can change your beliefs about how you view stress and how that changes your life. 
since I recorded the episode, I am 188 degrees different. Now, when something difficult is coming up, I'm like psyching myself up and I'm like, all right, stress response, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and it is so different than, mm-hmm. than how I was treating it before. Yeah, that's a part of our human nature to deal with stress. And can we talk about these mindset shifts? Yeah, that was a new topic for me. I, I honestly believe the opposite. I believe that you can't really change your mindset without changing your habits and your behaviors. And it takes a really long time. And she pretty much said you can change the course of your life in a five-minute intervention yeah. sometimes. Change your mind, change your life. But how do you do that? Yeah. H- how do you do it? And can you change your mind about everything? Like, can we change people's mind about them being innovative or curious? Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you do that? It has to come back to habits. Maybe that's just what we like to think. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now we're going round and round. People can go round and round with us <laughs> in the professional AF <laughs> Facebook group. It's very easy to join. You just ask to do it. It's a very easy approval process. Jesse and I chat about all kinds of things, including our new Whoop Professional AF group. Yeah. Let's talk about adding strain and stress and being able to see that on our Professional AF group yeah. on Whoop. It's good for your heart health. It is. It's free. It's free advertisement for Whoop <laughs> in the latter end It's mainly because I'm just obsessed with mine, so... Well, I hope you enjoyed both part one and part two of this episode. I am Diana Kander here with Jesse Jacob, reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. Hope you have a 180 degree change sometime in the next couple of weeks. And we'll talk to you soon.